Mark chapter 3. Verse 1. Mark 3 verse 1. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Of course, verse 6 tells us the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him for this awful, heinous, terrible thing he had just done. I love the Gospel of Mark because we just see Jesus in action. And it's so fun to join him there and to enter into those places. And as we talked about a bit on Wednesday night, it's not like reading a history. There really is a a, a transporting that happens there. That you feel like you're drawn back to that time with Jesus, but you also feel transported into His presence. And that's really what we want here. Because the Word of God is living and active, it's not a dusty old history book, we want to be transformed by it and transported into the presence of Jesus. And for that to happen, it requires one thing. It requires faith. We need faith. And the Lord requests and asks faith of us. And so, Lord Jesus, as we look at these few verses this morning, consider this marvelous story of compassion and grace. I pray that our faith would increase. I pray, Lord Jesus, for a breakthrough in our hearts that Your Spirit would break through and break out and remove from us whatever it is that slows our faith or oppresses our faith. Father, we've seen recently just in these few chapters of Mark how, how there was such a focus on the casting out of demons on the part of Jesus. We recognize that He needed to clean house. And Jesus Himself said, you you don't plunder the house until you first bind the strong man. Lord Jesus, in Your name, we bind any influence that would keep people from hearing the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We speak the name of Jesus here often and continually because we know there is power in Your name, there is strength in Your name, and in Your name, the demons flee and our faith increases. And we ask and pray this this morning, Lord, increase our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. How many southpaws do we have in the fellowship this morning? Raise your left hand. Wow, so quite a few of you. Excellent, excellent. I was born left-handed. Left-handed, I was, which I only came to discover as an adult. Because I write with my right hand. I play guitar right-handed. I even drive on the right side of the road. All these things, I, I, I go right And I learned it was because when I was a little boy, my mom steered me right. I would typically pick up the crayon in my left hand. She would take it out and put it in my right hand. My mom was an educator and was quite concerned that I might be made fun of at school or might have problems learning. And so she wanted me to be a right-handed boy, which I think explains some things because that will mess you up. (laughs) But she missed something. You see, my dad always took me to sports. And so to this day, when I play basketball, I go left. 
I am strong left. I, I'm strong dribbling left. I shoot left. I throw a frisbee with my left hand. I, shooting a gun, I would shoot left-handed. In fact, several years ago, my father-in-law gave me a, a beautiful shotgun for Christmas, and I couldn't use it because I'm left-handed, and it would shoot the shells out right into my face, which isn't good. <laughs> so it's interesting to me. I, I, I'm a left-handed guy, and you might say, well, what's that got to do with the story before us this morning? Well, first of all, I want us to south-pause this morning. For a moment. <laughs> And take a seat in the synagogue with Jesus as he heals a man with a withered hand. The man with a withered hand. And the left-handed aspect of this you will see in just a moment. But five things to consider just looking at this story. Maybe four. We'll just do four things. Five might be too much for you today. Four things. The affliction. I want you to consider the affliction. The antagonism. The audacity. (laughs) The audacity, I just love that word, you know. And the admonition. So the affliction, the antagonism, the audacity, and the admonition. Number one, the affliction. Jesus entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. Mark doesn't tell us which one. Just that he had a withered hand. You might not think that's a big deal, but it was a big deal. And the medically meticulous Dr. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 6, verse 6, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and there was a man there whose right hand was withered. In Middle Eastern culture, even today, this affliction was a big deal. This would have mattered greatly. This was more than just that a man lost the use or didn't have the use of his hand. It was his right hand that was withered. Among many Arabs today, this would be a problem. Because the left hand is used for, well, unclean things. Hygienic things. And so you never eat with your left hand in Middle Eastern culture. Never extend your hand to shake someone's hand with your left. That's considered offensive. You never hand someone something with your left hand. It's crude. It's insulting. You don't use the left hand. So to have a withered right hand, as this man did, would automatically render a person in the Middle East, especially in Jesus' day, as culturally offensive. He couldn't interact with people in the way typically you or I could because the one hand that you would use to interact and and reach out and respond and shake, that hand was withered. But there's more to this affliction. It hadn't always been this way. This withered right hand, the Greek word withered there, which is zoreno, means withered or shriveled, but it's written in the perfect participle, which means his hand had withered. He wasn't born with it withered. It had become withered. At some point in his life, probably due to disease or to accident, and if that's not bad enough, Early church historians taught and believed that he lost the use of this right hand, but before he lost the use of it, he was like Jesus, a tecton in the Greek. Tecton, which means a stonemason. I thought Jesus was a carpenter. Jesus was a tecton. Uh, it, It meant a craftsman. You could work with wood, you could work with stone. They have more stone than wood in Israel, so it was probably stone. But we know with this matter, we think... That not only is he culturally offensive because he has to use only his left hand, but he's physically useless. Gentlemen, 
You're a stonemason. This is what you do with your strong right hand and you lose the use of the hand and now suddenly you are incapacitated to do your job. You're having trouble caring for your family. Your identity takes a hit. Your self-worth. Because this is what I did, man. This is who I am and suddenly it's no longer because this hand had withered. Culturally offensive, physically useless, this man would also have been seen as spiritually inferior. Spiritually inferior. You know, the right hand was seen as the hand of strength. Even biblically speaking, Psalm 18, verse 8, I have set the Lord continually before me because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Psalm 16, 11. Psalm 18.35, your right hand upholds me. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 2, a wise man's heart directs him toward the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left, which may be political, I'm not saying. (laughs) Isaiah 41, verse 10, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The left hand is never used that way in the Bible. And there's a picture there of of strength going to the strong hand. Now, my left-handed brothers and sisters, you know the Lord's heart is not against lefties. It's not opposed to those who are left-handed. Obviously, He creates and loves all people. But the point is, man's misinterpretation of these things would have, could have led to spiritual judgment. Oh, there's the guy with the withered right hand. There's the guy who's not really able to take care of his family like the rest of us. There's the guy who says hi with that offensive hand, you know. Here he comes, this man to the synagogue. I point all that out to say this might not seem like such a big deal to us today, but it would have had a withering impact on this man's life. An affliction that left him culturally offensive, physically useless, spiritually inferior, at least He probably felt that way. But I wonder this. What did Jesus see in the synagogue that morning? I know one thing for certain. Jesus saw that this guy was at church. He's there. In spite of the tragic turn of events in this man's life, leaving his hand withered, his heart apparently was not. For he was there at synagogue. On Shabbat, worshiping the Lord. Is that where you go in your afflictions? Because this man chose to. Best place to be when your world is shriveling is in worship, is in fellowship. I think about us this morning. I look around and I know, I know some of you have faced crushing blows in your life. I know many of us from one time to another have felt useless. Still other times we feel spiritually inferior. There are aspects of this man's life we can relate to, but hey, you're here. You're here. You have come to Jesus. Not to Rick, not to the music, not even to the fellowship. First and foremost, we have come to Jesus. And by the way, for anyone who thinks they really don't need to go to church, notice who else was in the synagogue that day. Jesus was. If anyone could take a pass on weekly worship, I would say Jesus has the right. And yet the Bible tells us very clearly, very plainly, it was his custom to be in synagogue every single week. He got himself up. 
He and his disciples headed to synagogue and they were in the synagogue on Shabbat every week. Now he was in and out of the synagogues throughout the week as well, teaching and preaching the truth of the gospel about himself. But Luke 4.16 says, as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on Shabbat, on the Sabbath. So if anyone ever questions whether or not Sunday mornings are important, that church tradition of going and being there, it was apparently important to Jesus. Ironically, even Jesus' enemies knew they could find him at church, which brings me to the second point, the antagonists. The antagonists, verse 2, they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. These guys, Pharisees mostly, but there were scribes involved, there were Herodians involved, they had already been nitpicking Jesus and his apostles, following him around, picking on every single miracle, every single action that he did or his apostles were doing. They followed him. You can read that through chapter 2. We get to chapter 3, and they're already in the synagogue. And guess what? They went to the synagogue knowing two things, that Jesus would be there and he would probably do something they could catch him on. So the man with the withered hand comes to synagogue looking for the Lord. Jesus comes to synagogue as the Lord, bringing teaching and truth and compassion and love. And the adversaries, the antagonists, they come to synagogue for a completely different reason. They knew Jesus was going to try and heal this man. They knew the guy would be there. The whole thing was a setup on their part. They didn't come to form faith. Listen, they came to find fault. May we never come together in fellowship to find fault. If you walk in to the door of the barn and there is a brother or sister here who's bugging you and you're just looking for the next misstep, you need to turn yourself around and go right back out the door because that kind of attitude is not welcome at the bridge. It should not be welcome in any church. The attitude where we're looking for someone to do something wrong Because the reality is, when we walk in, when we gather together, we come into this place, we all suffer from the same withering affliction. We all suffer from sin. That makes us spiritually inferior, and culturally offensive, and physically useless. We are just like this guy. And anyone who walks in here thinking they are any better than another human being is dead wrong, and you need to get your heart right with Jesus. And you need to get your heart right with your brother or sister with whom you're trying to or seeking to find fault. Let it go. Forgive them. Love them. And then come to see Jesus. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, which means they didn't ask for forgiveness, they didn't fess up, they were caught. Paul says, You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Don't come to church as a critic. You come to church to see Christ. We come into this place to experience that tenderness and to offer it one to another because the law of Christ is the law of grace. And that's why Jesus was at synagogue that morning. My sense is Jesus knew the man with the withered hand would be there as well. And he showed up expecting to teach, but also expecting to make someone's life better than it was when they came in. The Pharisees, the antagonists, they had such a tight tight grip on the law of judgment. 
They looked at every nuance of the law. Not even Torah law in Scripture as much as their own traditions and legalities that they built up all around it. You Bible students know from a week or so ago, the Jewish halakha, which is the Jewish law, has 39 distinct categories or rules for Sabbath alone. 39 categories. And within those categories, there are subdivisions and explanations of what you can and cannot do on Shabbat. And it deals with everything from transportation to toilet paper. I kid you not. It's absolutely astounding that this day God gave for rest, the Jewish leaders took for bondage. (coughs) And a heaviness and a weight. And this is one of them. The whole idea of healing someone on the Sabbath. You ever wonder why that was such a big deal? Jesus is just healing. Why is that an issue? It comes up again and again in the Scriptures. I'll tell you why. According to the Halakha, if you inadvertently cut your finger, you were allowed to stop the flow of blood, but you could not apply ointment to it. It's that specific. You can put a Band-Aid on, but Neosporin is right out! (laughs) You can stop an ailment from getting worse, but you are not allowed to make it better. You can only stop it in its course. That's the idea behind this. That's why the Pharisees keep getting after Jesus about healing. Because Jesus' healing didn't just stop the pain, it reversed it. It restored life. He would restore, as we'll see in a moment, this man's hand. And this to the Pharisees was law violational behavior. I mean, for goodness sakes, the man's hand was withered, it's not going to get any worse. Leave it alone. All Jesus had to do was wait one day, even a few hours. Just wait till after sun goes down and Shabbat is over. And then you can heal the guys and do whatever you want. Just don't do it on our, on our day. Because, of course, man was made for the Sabbath. That would be their mentality. And my friends, that is the danger of legalism. What happens is we find ourselves waltzing around the law rather than going to the heart of the law. And the heart of the law is to bring us to Jesus. It's to bring us to healing. That's why Torah was given in the first place. And what's the purpose of the Sabbath? Jesus said in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man, for the Sabbath. Shabbat was all about man slowing down, taking rest, fellowshipping with family, and most importantly, fellowshipping with God. And that's why we come together here. We take the lead from Sabbath to come together and to fellowship one with another, to fellowship with our Lord, to rest in the presence of Jesus. Shabbat itself, the Sabbath, was also a picture of God's coming grace. So it wasn't just about the day. It was about a coming day. We know that because the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 4.9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That is for Israel. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from His. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. To rest in the grace of God means we let go of all of our legalistic tendencies. We stop judging one another. We stop judging the heart. And we enter into the grace of Jesus Christ. It was grace Jesus was revealing there on that Shabbat. It was grace that restored this man's hand. But the adversaries of Jesus were so opposed, they couldn't see the grace. The man had a shriveled hand, they had shriveled hearts. Their hearts were hard. 
and dried up. And so Jesus decided then and there to make an example of this handicapped man. Number three, the audacity. Verse three. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. Now he asked the critics two questions for them to consider. Question number one, is it lawful to do good or harm on the Sabbath? Point is, to leave this man in his withered condition, to leave his hand as it was, would be to harm him. He wouldn't just stay in the same place. His harm would continue, especially, by the way, if you had the power to heal him and you left him that way, that is doing harm. I think by extension, and Jesus doesn't say this, but by extension, He could say to all doctors in Israel, if you have the ability to make someone's life better, but you don't do it on the Sabbath, you are violating the Sabbath. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm? Jesus had the power in Himself to heal the man, and if He didn't heal the man, guess what it would have been for Jesus? Sin. If Jesus had put it off to the next day, it would have been sin. James says in James 4.17, To the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. You ever put off doing the right thing? You ever just hold off, wait a minute, pause? Guess what? You've sinned. Just by not doing it, if you know to do it. There are sins of commission. Okay, those are sins that we commit. We know it's doing something you know you shouldn't do, but we commit the sin. There are also sins of omission. And that's not doing what you know you're supposed to do. That's avoiding doing the right thing. So Jesus says, which is better? Which is more lawful to ease this man's suffering or to leave him to wallow in it for a few more hours or perhaps another day? If I know I can make his life better. Question number two. Is it lawful to save a life or to kill. And we have to remember, Jesus was and still is in the life-saving business, not the religion business. Which is why the healing on Shabbat takes up even uh, more significance. Because you look at the, the contrast between the two. The religious significance of keeping the Sabbath. And the significance of healing somebody on the Sabbath. One is life-saving, the other one is religion. And Jesus always falls on the life-saving side of things. Jesus will always save a life before keeping tradition. Would that we would have that same concept, that same understanding, that we would look to people with a desire to save rather than to be religious. And I'm not just talking about how we treat each other. I'm talking about how we treat a lost and sinful world. Rather than prove the sinner wrong, Perhaps we should be more about the saving of the life, which comes through grace and through kindness. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, not to set up a new religious order, not to harden what had already become a religious order within Judaism. In Matthew's rendering of this story, Jesus said in Matthew 12, 11, What man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? He makes a comparison. You'll save the life of your animal, but you won't save the life of this man? 
What is wrong with your thinking? Listen, if you miss this, you miss the heart of God. Jesus is by nature the Savior. Not just by name. It's not just that we call Him the Savior. We call Him the Savior not because it's a title, but because it's who He is. He can't help but save. The Pharisees knew that. They show up at Shabbat that day because they knew He had to act. They knew He was going to do something. They were right. Because His nature was compassionate and He would not leave it alone. Luke chapter 2, verse 11 tells us this, at Jesus' birth, the angels singing, speaking to the shepherds, Today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Savior and Lord. Okay, King, full authority, but also the one who saves. And John said in 1 John 4.14, We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son, the Savior of the world. It's not just what He does, it's who He is. So the Savior is there in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and He's questioning the Pharisees. And by the way, I believe He was questioning the Pharisees to try and draw them out of their hardness. For their benefit. If it didn't matter to Jesus, if they didn't matter to Him, then all He would have had to do was heal the man and and be done with it. But He makes an issue of it. And I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Because I need to tell you something here. And please heed this. Those who have the audacity to use the church as a barrier to salvation will face the anger of the Lord. If we hold up church to distance ourselves from a non-believing world and to point out how bad they are versus how good we are, we are in danger of facing God's anger. Jesus in verse 5, after looking around at them with anger, was grieved at their hardness of heart. Now, note this. He was angry, but He did not sin. Ephesians 4.26 tells us, be angry, but don't sin. Anger is a natural emotion. You're going to feel angry. You should feel angry from time to time especially where righteousness is violated. But do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And the word anger here is in the aorist tense in the Greek, which simply means it was fleeting. It was a flash of anger. He looks around at the Pharisees and he's just like, Really? Are you kidding me? But instantly, after shooting this withering glance, that anger changes. It melts into grief. And it melts into grief. Deep sorrow. Sulapeo. Grief. Means deeply sorrowful. And that's in the present tense, which means it was a lasting and continuing sorrow. Angry and then... <sighs> sorrowful as he looked at these adversaries, these opponents, these enemies. His heart breaks for them. The man with the withered hand, that was not the source of Jesus' grief grief, because he knew he was going to heal him. This guy was going to be restored. This was a good day for the man with the withered hand, but it was a bad day for the Pharisees. And Jesus was grieved about that. These are people we sometimes don't recognize as loved by Jesus. Typically when the word Pharisees is even used, you all know where our hearts go. We go, oh yeah, the bad guys. You know, the religious stuff shirts. The guys who called for the crucifixion. The guys who picked on Jesus. Ah, oh, we don't like the Pharisees. Well, let me tell you something. You may not like them, but Jesus loved them. And His heart was grieved for them. 
They mattered just as much to him as the man with the withered hand. But their problem, again, was a hardness of heart. They would not respond to his love. He was grieved at their hardness of heart, porosis. And that's the problem. And that's when a person cannot see the grace of God is when the heart goes hard. A person cannot respond to God's love when their heart is hard. And the heart gets hard by continually saying no, by continually pushing away, by ignoring and rejecting, listen, by rejecting the Holy Spirit. That's where a heart goes hard. Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So we have the affliction of the withered hand, the antagonist seeking to find fault, the audacity, not of Jesus to heal on the Sabbath, but the audacity of the Pharisees in their hardness of heart not to recognize what compassion was all about. And number four, and this is what I want you to really hear, the admonition. The admonition, verse 5, after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Now, someone might say, Jesus used this poor soul as an object lesson for the Pharisees. I mean, that must have been a little embarrassing. Jesus calls him out. Calls him up to the front in front of everybody. He used this guy. (laughs) To which I would respond, Oh Lord, use me. Use me, Lord Jesus. It wasn't about just teaching the Pharisees. Jesus' heart truly was to this man. You know what's wonderful about this? The one guy in the whole synagogue who must have felt the most ostracized, culturally offensive, physically useless, spiritually inferior, he's the one man Jesus was drawn to. He's the one Jesus noticed. He's the one Jesus determined to heal. And Jesus admonishes him, stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. One of the men who had probably the greatest impact on my young faith was a pastor in Camarillo, California for many, many years. Had a powerful command of the Scriptures. A beautiful, deep, operatic voice. In fact, he ended up singing at Cheryl's and my wedding. His name is Tim Tim Kelly. Tim is still around. He's still preaching the Word. And Tim had polio. And it was the first... My introduction as a young kid to polio, I had to ask my mom, what's, what's wrong with him? Because he walked with a cane, he had, he had a real bad limp, and his, his left hand literally just hung limp at his side. Atrophied, useless, tiny little arm and limp hand that had no life to it, it just hung there. And I think about Tim, and then I think about Jesus' admonition. Stretch out your hand. What? Stretch out your hand. I haven't used this hand in years. Stretch out your hand. No, you don't understand, Lord. I have no feeling here. I have no power. I know I can't. How can I stretch out my hand? Here's the man in the synagogue, and Jesus says, "Stretch out your hand." And what surprises me is in Scripture, He doesn't say, "I can't do that." What are you talking about? Stretch out my hand. And that's the idea behind the admonition. What are you talking about, Willis? Let me tell you. (laughs) Remember back in chapter 2, what happened with the paralytic? 
What did Jesus say to the paralytic? My son, your sins are forgiven. That was the first thing He said. And then Jesus turns toward him. Look back there. Chapter 2, verse 9. Jesus says, again, talking with the adversaries, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. Immediately he got up and picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so they were all amazed and were glorifying God and were saying, we have never seen anything like this. What if the paralytic lying there had said, get up? You making fun of me? Paralyzed. (laughs) What if the man with the withered hand said, "Uh, withered? What are you talking about? Stretch out my hand. Listen, don't miss this. What brought about the instantaneous healing of both the paralytic on the pallet and the man with the withered hand is they acted on the word they heard. Yes, the power was in Jesus' word, but it connected to the faith that was in their hearts. Had they sat back and said, I can't walk. I can't stretch out my hand then there would not have been a miracle that day. The admonition, and I love this about Jesus, is He says, I'm going to speak the Word to you, but you've got to act on it. Stretch out your hand. Respond to Me. Believe Me for what I'm saying to you. Keep your finger here and go over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. I'm going to put some, some meat on the bread of the Word here. Because I think we've read even this passage and and just kind of taken it spiritually rather than actually. Now hear this. James chapter 1, verse 21. James says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. You know what the word souls there is? It's suke in the Greek. It's where we get psyche. It's your intellect. He is not talking in that moment. He's not talking about the word implanted saving your spirit for all eternity. He's talking about the word implanted changing your mind. Changing the way you think. Altering your soul man. That is the one who's perceiving and thinking and considering all these things. This will save your soul. And he says, but prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Note that too. James doesn't say you've forgotten how you look. He says you've forgotten who you are. What kind of person you are. We tend to see that when we look in the mirror because we don't look at how we look so much as we look at who we are. And sometimes we don't really like who we are. But we walk away and we forget that. The distractions of life, the busyness of life. We forget who we are. And James says if you hear the Word but you don't do the Word, you forget who you are in relation to the Word. Verse 25, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it. Note that, abides by it. Underline it, circle it, abides by it. Not having come a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. 
That is not a vague, generic blessing, gang. The blessing comes in the doing of the Word. The blessing comes in the doing of the Word. Let me simplify this. If you have some withered, shriveling, uh, crippling issue in your life, don't just hear the Word of God. Do it. And in the doing of His Word, the blessing will come. Let me be even more practical. If you're depressed... The Bible says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. What does that mean? It means if you're sorrowful, praise the Lord. If you're downcast, worship. If you're feeling bummed out and low and blue, sing praise. But I don't feel like it. He didn't ask if you felt like it. (laughs) Sing. If you've got anger issues... Be angry, but do not sin. Well, that's easier said than done. Do the Word. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Man, if you've got anger issues, you need to get over it before the sun goes down that day. Work it out. Are you a grumbler? Is everything negative with you? Well, I just don't like Oh, that's a problem. I just kind of... You know what the Bible says? Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Philippians 2.14 and 15. Well, I don't feel like a light in the world. Yeah, but you'll appear like one if you just stop grumbling. (laughs) I said this last week. Is your marriage in trouble? The single key to saving any marriage is do the Word of God in your marriage. Ephesians 5.22 Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, Ephesians 5.25 Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Do the Word and the blessing will come. Are you struggling with some withering sin in your life? Something that's got a hold of you. You're a believer? You love Jesus, you've proclaimed Jesus, you've accepted and you're walking, you're a Christian, you would call yourself that, and yet there's this ongoing, continual sin issue that keeps you withered. Do the Word of God. Paul said in Romans 6.11, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. What sin? Could be a sexual sin in your life. Could be alcoholism. It could be a drug addiction. It could be Facebook. Whatever it is. <laughs> sorry, sorry, throw that one in for fun. Paul says in Romans 6.11, Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do the Word. Now, I know some would say, Rick, that's nice biblical advice. This is not a book of advice. This was not written as a self-help manual. This is a book that is filled with the life-changing power of the words of Jesus Christ. He speaks the word of power. What are you going to do with it? What am I going to do with it? Am I going to believe Him for it and walk in it? Or am I just going to take it as nice advice that really can't change my life? Rick, you're telling us things that we just can't do. You mean like stretching out a withered hand? Or like getting up up off of a pallet and walking? You want to talk about things that people could not do? And yet Jesus spoke the word, they believed Him for the word, and they were healed. And that is the key, I think, that so often we miss 
as followers of Jesus. The power of His Word to heal. Emotional issues and spiritual issues and physical issues in our lives. For the Word of God, Hebrews 4.12, is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing. Now listen, as far as the division of soul, that's mentally, and spirit, spiritually, and of both joints and marrow, physically, In one fell swoop, the Hebrew writer says, mentally, spiritually, and physically, all aspects of who you are, guess what? The Word of God gets in there and can make all the difference. If you will hear the Word and do the Word, it's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So it even deals with our secret and hidden motives, even some of the things that we don't realize are going on in our brains the Bible can pull out and deal with if we're willing to hear and do the Word. Stretch out your hand. Get up off of your pallet, pick it up, and walk. And it is far more simple than we make it. Paul put it this way. He said in 2 Corinthians 4.2, We have renounced the hidden things because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. What does that mean? Listen, when the man with the withered hand, by faith, stretched out his hand, everyone in the synagogue that day saw the manifestation of truth. They saw with their own eyes the power of the Word of God. All because the man just did what he was told to do. Because he responded to the Word of Christ. Both of these stories in Mark and many of the miracles that we will run across and see Jesus performing throughout the Gospel story. These these stories and the story of your life brings us in contact with, with Jesus who is admonishing us to visible, actionable faith. Faith that says, I believe His Word for this, so I am going to do what His Word tells me to do. That's not legalism. It's faith. It's saying, you know what? I, I, yeah, it sounds wild. Stretching out a withered, ruined, shriveled up hand is not something any man could do. But Jesus said, do it. Okay. I believe you, Lord. We've become very oppressed in this culture. Very used to things. Hollywood can do it all. We've seen all the special effects on the screen. We know everything can look like reality now. And it's all virtual, and we're so numbed by all of that that when we read something like a man's shriveled hand getting healed, well, I could see, they could could do that real easily. You know, just a little computer-generated, And we're so just used to this stuff. This is so big to me this morning. I hope it is to you that both in the synagogue that morning and in the barn this morning, Jesus is coupling God's power with our obedience. It's His power that healed the man. You know, It's no power that was in the man himself. It was God's power that did it. But it was His obedience that allowed that power to flow. And I believe the Lord would say to us this morning, just obey me. Do what my word says to do. I know it's hard sometimes. He says, stretch out your hand. He says, pick up your pallet and walk. He says, receive the Word of God and act on it. By the way, in Matthew's retelling of this miraculous healing, he notes that this happened to fulfill what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. What was that? 
the first servant song. Matthew chapter 12, verses 20 and 21, he quotes the first servant song where he says, this happened to show this song to be true. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. We sing that song, Tenderness. The whole idea behind that song is that we talk about brokenness in Christianity. They've got to be broken before Him. And, and I think that's true, that we need to humble ourselves before Him. But I think it misses the point that Jesus doesn't break us. A bruised reed, He will not break off. He's not looking to shatter you or to crush you. He is looking to tenderly carry you and to heal you. And again, it may be a relationship issue that needs healing. It may be a physical problem that needs healing. Oh, Rick, you're going to say that you now believe in physical healing? Of course. Absolutely. Why would we not? The question is whether or not we will respond to his admonition. If you would all bow your heads for a moment this morning. I'm going to ask the shepherds either go to the back or come up front. You all just stay seated where you are. And I want you to pause this morning and to consider with all truth and honesty before the Lord, is there some withering issue in your life that you're just not believing Him for? Or something that you have struggled to believe Him for? Like, like the man who's whose son was possessed and he cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. Maybe you're in that place. Maybe there's something going on in your life that has just continued to be a problem. I believe the Lord would say to you this morning, and I hope you hear Him, stretch out your hand. I'm going to pray, and as I pray, I invite you to either go to the back or come on up to the front. If you happen to be one of these people (laughs) that we all are if we're honest with ourselves, who needs to stretch out their hand this morning, please come to Jesus.